Isn't it grand to be able to sing about our confidence and trust in Jesus? To appreciate as the sunshine pursues in its setting down of the day that we can come together for a purpose like this and to appreciate the marvelous and wonderful blessing that's ours. Many of us have, of course, earlier enjoyed an opportunity today to already offer our worship unto God, and we are excited about doing that again. We've already sung these songs and engaged in prayer together, and as we did that collectively, it has now brought us to a time when this portion of the service, our goal will be to rightly divide the word of truth, borrowing the words of 2 Timothy 2.15, and for the next few moments to think about a lesson I've entitled, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That isn't me, of course, that's Jesus, but what, nonetheless, I've used that as the title because, as you noticed in the reading, that, of course, is the words of the Revelation. You might want to be turning to the Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and tonight we'll be looking at a few passages found in that noble 66th Bible book. These words of introduction, my intent will be to use them to prompt or at least to motivate us for the first part of the lesson. Isn't it amazing how great a teaching tool the Bible can be? Scattered throughout the books of the Bible, yea, the chapters of the Bible, we find many references that are so effective in teaching. In fact, as you'll notice, we find there, that there are parables in which something that's very well known is used to teach lasting eternal truths. Isn't it fantastic to think about Jesus teaching about sowing seed and how easy it is for us to imagine that and yet... That that's descriptive of the heart and how one responds to the seed, Matthew 13, verses 1 and following. That's just one example of so many others. In addition to that, there are the marvelous miracles in which someone's life, in many cases, was transformed, and often rather remarkably, as a result of some special work of healing on the part of the God of heaven. Furthermore, what about various and sundry other details? Tonight, we're going to look at one of them that doesn't fall into either one of those categories. But nonetheless, in the Revelation, as you can see at the bottom of that slide, sometimes there's marvelous vividness. Vividness in comparison. Vividness in drama. Vividness in, in fact, reminding those present about some eternal matter of truth. The Revelation fits much into that particular outline, doesn't it? It is for that reason. Think about a figure of speech. Isn't it beautiful how sometimes we use figures of speech? Something that conveys a sense, an idea. If I were to make the sentence, I have to be careful in that I must walk on eggshells. You know exactly what I mean. It doesn't mean I'm literally walking on shells of eggs, but rather as I make statements, I must be careful because someone might take it wrongly. And they might, in fact, due to that, act in a very defensive or inappropriate way. To walk on eggshells, just one example of so many figures of speech. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, the Bible's full of metaphors. It's full of descriptions like that. I would call to your attention... Jeremiah chapter 13, a very memorable passage. God told Jeremiah, go and take a linen girdle, a belt as you and I would call it. I don't want you to wear it, Jeremiah, all the time at least. 
after a while of wearing it, God says, you go and take it and hide it in the rocks beside the Euphrates River. Now, maybe you and I are led to a bit of a maze, but why would you do a belt that way? And yet, as you and I read the 13th chapter of Jeremiah, we learn there was an object lesson in it. A number of months later, God told Jeremiah, you go back and get the belt that you hid in those rocks beside the river, and now notice the condition of it. We know what leather would do if you buried it in a rocky, wet place. It would deteriorate. When he went back to get it, that's exactly what had happened. That belt was good for nothing. Cast it away from you, Jeremiah, because it'll do you no good now. What's the lesson? My people who once were near and dear to me because of their faithlessness and the fact that they've turned aside from me, they are now like the belt. They're no good to me. I'm going to cast them off into captivity now, and there's where they're going to be. What an object lesson. All with a linen girdle. Not only that, what about the marriage of Hosea, the first of the minor prophets? And yet in that book, we remember something very, very strange about Hosea's wife. I use the word strange. To be frank about it, she was a prostitute. Hosea married her, and sad to say that after, in fact, their marriage had taken place, she went back to the world that she once had known. She was not faithful to Hosea, but he loved her. In fact, he went to find her, and when he found her, he had to pay some money to bring her back to himself. What a lesson. One more time, God said, My people, and I was a faithful husband to them, just like Hosea has been a faithful husband to his wife, but... She wasn't faithful to him, and my people, God said, haven't been faithful to me. Isn't that a memorable lesson? Sad, but very memorable. I say all that as introduction to say as we close that slide. Let's turn to the Revelation, the closing book in the Bible, and let us allow the Holy Spirit to lead us to appreciate an interesting development there using figures of speech and using particular descriptions. This next slide takes us at least to a brief outline, a, a, some introductory thoughts, if you please, to the Revelation. I'm sure that as you and I have often turned our attention to it, the Revelation's an intriguing book, 22 chapters and often filled with descriptions and vividness and drama. Sometimes there are matters occurring and being described that offer a challenge to the fullness of one's desired appreciation. But the major lesson of the book is crystal clear. And may I suggest many of those other matters aren't as cloudy as we sometimes might wish to make them. Isn't it true that the title of that book is very leading? It is the revelation. And you and I know that when something is revealed, that means it's uncovered. That means it's made known. In fact, when you conceal something, you don't reveal it. Isn't that suggestive? Some would then take the book of Revelation in that they consider it confusing and impossible to understand, but it's called the Revelation. It means he meant for it to be understood. He meant for it to be utilized and appreciated. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It wasn't made up by John. It wasn't put together by individuals of the first century who were not inspired. The apostle John is the one who was blessed to write it. As you will notice in verse number 1, 
this particular movement is, is developed. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which He Himself delivered to the angel, who in turn brought it to John, who in turn delivered it to the servants. And you and I now for 20 centuries or so have been blessed by the book of Revelation. The human family in considering it, in making application of it. Look at the next point with me, would you? The language, the characteristic presentation of the book is called apocalyptic. That's a very interesting sounding word, but don't lose sight of what it means. The word apocalypse literally just has reference to the unveiling. It's as if the curtain was being raised by Jesus and we were being given a panoramic view of things which we otherwise would never know. The apocalypse. In fact, in Greek, that's the name of the book. You and I in English call it Revelation. In Greek, it's the apocalypse. Notice the apocalyptic language. All throughout the Bible, apocalyptic language is often used in those times when people were in such desperate need of hope and encouragement, resourcefulness. Think about where the Old Testament apocalyptic books developed. Books like Zechariah, Daniel, Ezekiel. Those were written to people who were in Babylonian captivity or shortly thereafter. And so you'll notice the message of God, truthful as it was, was couched in language that was often very dramatic and filled with vision. So too it is the revelation. The people to whom that book was written, in the first century they were beneath the difficulty of Rome. The Roman Empire was harsh and oppressive, and often it could bring about one's death if you didn't submit to it. And yet God penned through the revelation a message of encouragement, a message of hope, a message of steadfastness. Tonight, I believe, as we come to the passage of interest to us, we shall find all of that as a very moving backdrop. Perhaps one final thing. The book of Revelation, unlike any other, discloses the marvelous beauty of heaven, and it also discloses the awful terribleness of hell. We have them portrayed in ways that we can even imagine. It's almost as if one final time, God says, whatever it takes, in faithfulness, in commitment, in dedication, you make sure that you live in such a way that heaven will be your home eternally and avoid those places that place known as hell as you and I close that slide then the book of revelation fills you and me with courage and confidence and hope it fills us with an understanding of why Christianity means everything to us as we turn the slide to the next page let's then give some appreciation to the title of the lesson you may notice it was, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That phrase, as you can well tell, it occurs four times in the Revelation. Four times in the last book of the Bible. Twice in chapter 1, verses 8 and 11. Once in chapter 21, verse number 6. Once in chapter 22, verse 13. Isn't it interesting to note the bookend structure of those? Again, twice in chapter 1 and the others are near the end of the book. It's almost as if when those individuals of the first century heard this being read, 
they of course would have heard the opening pronouncement of chapter 1 that I am the Alpha and the Omega. But then as the book closed, after all the drama, the developments, one more time they'd hear, I am the Alpha and the Omega. It'd be hard to miss the fact it occurred in those two strategic places. Isn't it true that with regard to that, that's the only times, by the way, in the entirety of the Bible in which those phrases appear. One last time in the Revelation, and four times it is. It is with that in mind, might I ask you to appreciate the powerful beauty attached to all four of them. At the bottom of the slide, you'll notice, at this point we could make observations. So who is it that is the object of this Alpha and the Omega? In chapter 1, verse 8, the reference is to God the Father. It is He that's identified as the Alpha and the Omega. As you look further, though, in chapter 21, verse 6, it is Jesus the Christ, the one who is able to provide and to give that thirst-quenching eternal water that is able to satisfy one's utmost need forevermore. Finally, in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, one more time, it's Jesus the Christ, the Savior, who Himself is identified as the Alpha and the Omega. And there, in context, it's the one who comes quickly and who comes with reward. Aren't those enriching passages? Alpha and the Omega. Now, I didn't mention the second one. Going back to chapter number 1, you may notice the wording in which it appears. Again, the second one. Verse number 11. I'll begin reading in verse 10, but it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. So may we notice, the voice had said, I am Alpha and Omega, and John was desirous to know who the voice was. Let's read further. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. May we pause to note, the voice of the one that said that I am Alpha and Omega is now identified in the midst of the candlesticks as like the Son of Man. Now Jesus frequently referred to Himself as the Son of Man. Let's read further. Clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His, his head and His hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and His eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet likened to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last." The same one that had said, I am Alpha and Omega, now goes on to say, I'm the first and the last. Verse 18 gives us this commentary. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. 
There's no question who that is. Not the slightest ambiguity crosses your mind or mine. This one who said, I am Alpha and Omega, in the midst of his churches. You'll notice that as he made that reference, his hair was white. It described him in verse 15, his feet like unto fine brass. Verse 18, he was alive and dead and alive again. That could only be Jesus the Christ. And we notice then three out of the four times, the Alpha and Omega referred directly to the Son, the second member of the Godhead. And it in a sweet consideration to build some of the following thoughts on that identity. Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega. As we turn the slide to the next point, I have written at the top, over to the right, the way in which that literal phrase occurs in Greek. I am Alpha and Omega. As you take a look at that particular phrase, might I draw attention to some of the features of it, if I might? That didn't help me much. The very last letter the very last letter of it, you may notice that it looks somewhat like the English letter W. That's nothing but, of course, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. The Greek alphabet is very different than the English. Now, thankfully, there are many particular letters that have sounds a lot like the English one. For example, there's a Greek letter that sounds almost exactly like the English letter L. So if we were to say the word love that begins with the letter L, and if somebody were to speak Greek to us, and they used a word in Greek that had that word in it, we would immediately recognize the sound of the letter L. There's also the letter O. Now, we in English call it O. In Greek, they don't call it O. But it sounds the same. That letter omega, very last one that appears there, that is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So it's like our Z, in the sense of where at least where it occurs, but it doesn't sound anything like it. The letter omega, oddly enough, sounds an awful lot like the letter O in English. As you look at that, though, notice that earlier in that same sentence, there's another letter. It's the letter Alpha. So in this particular statement, there is Alpha, there is Omega. As we develop the following lessons and the thoughts around it, could I ask you to appreciate again where those letters occur? Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet, and Alpha is the first letter. That says a lot, doesn't it? So when Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, He was giving a statement, and a very memorable one at that, about from beginning unto end, first unto last, and everything in between. I am the meaning of it. I'm the development for it. I'm the purpose behind it. I am everything from A to Z. All of that you and I can appreciate from Alpha and Omega. You may notice furthermore, that there are a number of lessons, it seems to me, that you and I could immediately take from that, uh, that series of observations. Alpha and Omega, I might ask for the next few moments that you and I give careful thought as to the full course of your life and mine. 
Is it literally the case that this Jesus, the one whom we adore so that he is the Alpha and Omega for you, for me? These lessons, let's begin like this. You've already heard me point out that Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Again, in placement, it's the same place as our English letter A. To say then that I am Alpha and Omega, doesn't that immediately bring to our thought then the very genesis of all things? There'd be no universe, there'd be nothing had there not been a point of origination, had there not been a moment in which that was brought into existence. Who is the one that did that creating? Who is the one that brought that about? It was Jesus. As we come near the bottom of that slide, might I ask you to recall Colossians 1, verses 16, 17, and 18. Isn't it true on that occasion that as the creation is being described, it is firmly asserted that by Christ all things were made that are in heaven in earth, under the earth, all things were made by Him and for Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's a very encompassing statement. Jesus made it all. And without Him, nothing that was made was ever made. He created it. Doesn't that add a richness of meaning as you and I think about Jesus far predated the nature of even man? He was in existence before the events of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He is eternal. Is it any wonder then in John 8 verses 58 and 59, He in addressing the Pharisees directly said, Before Abraham was, I am. He was eternal. Just as God the Father, just as God the Holy Spirit, He was eternal. I am Alpha and Omega. You may notice in light of that Alpha, You and I can ask some questions about ourselves. How do you and I start our day in the mornings? Didn't the writer of Lamentations point out, God's mercies are wonderful. They are new every morning. Aren't you thankful for a sunrise in the morning? Aren't you thankful for a new day in which you have the opportunity of life and the blessedness that comes with serving God? To say that Christ is the Alpha is to say we should be excited every day to build a life in service to Him, following Him with directness and following Him with with the power and blessing that comes with it. May you and I then think about the Alpha in that regard and give appreciation to its significance. Jesus did say on one occasion, didn't He, in John 15, early in that chapter He very correctly said, Without me, you can do nothing. I hope you and I will think about that this week. My job or your job, may we ever keep those in perspective and realize that without the blessing of the Christ, we would be nothing. We would not be able to carry forth and to, in fact, serve Him acceptably and live a life with all the promise and the blessing of looking forward to the life after this one. I am Alpha. As we close that slide, the importance attached to that phrase only leads us to note some more. You'll notice at the top of this slide, the letter Omega. Now, you again may appreciate with me that Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. 
And although I haven't said much about the numbers, perhaps it would be in order to do that. The English language, our alphabet, of course, has 26 letters, A to Z. Greek has only 24. So they have there are two letters in English that just have no counterpart in Greek at all. And not only that, some of the letters that they do have are very different than any letters we've got. Suffice it to say, the 24th and last letter is Omega. It was often used in Greek society to identify the conclusion of a thing, the summary of a thing, the ending vitality of a thing. Here, lest you and I give some thought to these. When Jesus said, I am the Omega, what did He mean by that? We've talked briefly about what it, He may have meant, what He appeared to suggest relative to the, to the Alpha. He's the originating point of anyone that they can stand right with God. Not only in that point of Genesis and creation, a life. Isn't it amazing that the Ephesians were told in Ephesians 2 verse 1, they were dead in trespasses and sins, but when they obeyed the gospel, they were alive in Christ. Isn't it amazing to think of the transformation that occurs? A person who's dead spiritually walks down this aisle, makes that beautiful confession, is immersed into Christ, and they are alive perhaps for the first time. You give thought to just how marvelous that is. I know I stand before a group and virtually all of us have known and experienced that. That newness of life in Christ. But what about this Omega? What about the finality, the ending point? Perhaps these thoughts are reasonable to consider. Have you ever thought about what that text in Ephesians 1 verse 10 means? Could I invite you to note it with me? Ephesians chapter 1 verse number 10. In the heart of that opening chapter of the Ephesian letter, the inspired apostle was called, lifted if you please, to a high degree of placement as he made statements like these. Now the sentence is very lengthy. One would need to go back to verse 3 to start the sentence, so let, let me start it in mid-sentence with verse number 7. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He hath purposed in Himself. I might pause to ask us to notice verse 7. The forgiveness of sins is due to Christ. Christ is the one that Paul is describing. He is the one Paul is discussing. And now with that in mind, look at verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He, that's Christ, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. I might ask you to notice that in that tenth verse, there's a statement, a comment that's made, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ. There's a very good reason why Jesus will be the judge on the day of judgment. We're told in the New Testament 
Didn't God say in John 5, 22, I've given all judgment to the Son. Jesus on that day will be the judge. He will be the one before whom we appear. He will be the one before whom we stand. He will be the one that we shall, of course, give accounting of all the deeds done in the body. And yet it says here that all things in that dispensation to come, all things will be gathered together in one in Christ. Doesn't that cause you and me to think about the Omega? If it's the case that then on that day of judgment, at that final occasion, at that final moment, all will be summarized and gathered in Christ, doesn't it make you want to make sure you're in Christ? Doesn't it highlight the incredible needfulness of that? And yet here we appreciate that God is going to gather in, in His Son all things. With that in mind, what does that cause us to contemplate? As you and I close a day and throughout it, are we also mindful that Jesus is the Omega? Are we mindful that all things are summarized by Him and in Him? May we keep that in mind and may we contemplate it and appreciate what it means. You'll notice a rather large word that occurs over to the right. You may have read books or heard various references to so-called eschatology. That's a fancy-sounding word, but it simply means the doctrine of last things. What's going to take place at the end of time? Now those of us who, of course, know what the Bible teaches aren't left to wonder about that. We know exactly that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to descend not back to this earth, but He's going to appear in the clouds and a trump is going to sound and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 17. And then we know that there will be a moment thereafter, shortly thereafter, in which judgment will occur. But Jesus is the one that's going to appear in the clouds. Jesus is the one that will be the judge. Jesus is the one that will pronounce sentence. Everything, of course, He's going to be the Omega. You might notice a few final thoughts, and the lesson will be yours. I thought I would emphasize one last thing that does seem to have a very interesting import here. It's the fact that that Greek statement I put up earlier for your consideration, Alpha and Omega, in Greek there's something else unique about that. It has to do with the bottom of this slide. Each one of those letters is preceded by a definite article. If I may state it again with that emphasis, he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He didn't just say, I am Alpha and Omega. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. As if there is no possibility of any other, as if there is no opportunity for any competing matter, I'm the one and only Alpha and the one and only Omega. No wonder those kind of thoughts lead us to think about some of these last appreciations on that slide. The Lord Jesus Christ is not one among a competing many. He is only one. There's no life without Him. No wonder He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Throughout the ages, that text in John 14, 6 has been the source of controversy. It sounds so exclusive because it is. It is. 
There is no other way to glory. There is no other way to heaven. In Acts, 8, Acts 4, verse number 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. As Peter so forcefully preached that message, there were those of his day that didn't appreciate it either. You and I still live in an age and in a culture and in a time when that lesson, that message sounds much too exclusive and too hard. Isn't that what it means to walk by faith? We've often noted that faith means to do what God says, the way He said it, for the reason He said it, and to trust that He always gets it right. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that eliminates then any competing models, any competing sources. As we close our lesson, then those facts on that slide, as it closes, lead us to end our lesson with these observations about these Greek letters. Everything in this life is upheld, motivated, and moved with consistency with Jesus. I know as a scientist, I often have that thought pass my mind. As you're studying the intricate details of an atom... A chemist would do well to remember that those forces, molecular in character, that are responsible for the stability of that atom, Jesus is upholding it. Jesus is consisting in it. Go down further, another factor of 10 to the 5th, and look at a nucleus where protons and neutrons are there. The forces are truly remarkable to consider, and yet the Lord Himself said, everything consists in Him. He is Alpha and Omega. Those blessed to study the medical world, the intricacies of the human body, aren't we told? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Psalm 139, verse 14. Those who labor in mathematics, no sweeter truth on earth, I suppose, than math, and yet didn't Jesus say, I'm the truth? John 14, 6. It doesn't matter what the arena of life may be. The fullness of its meaning, the richness of that from which it originated, all of it revolves in fullness around the one who is Alpha and Omega. The Alpha and the Omega. On that particular slide, a number of quick references calling to our mind and calling to our remembrance several features in which the Bible writers bring that before us and do so rather often. I've just selected a handful of them. That rich man in Luke 16, he seemingly understood well, of course, too late for him, but he understood well there was no other. And he wanted somebody to go back and to tell his brothers about that place and what they needed to do to avoid it. What about Jesus' words himself in Mark 8, verses 36 and 37? The statements there are quite memorable, aren't they? And very telling. In the midst of his preaching ministry, Jesus said, What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? That was prefaced when he said the statements, If a man were to gain the whole world and lose his own soul, has he come out the better? Has it been a wise exchange? Of course not. We understand that. We seemingly see again Alpha and Omega. What about the third one? 
Paul's words in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ, but Paul, what about death? That's just gain. If you and I are faithful Christians, those kinds of sentiments can fill our heart, and we're thankful for the life that we have here. But when the time comes for that to be no more, we understood well that if Christ Jesus has been our Alpha and our Omega, then we have built our life on the Alpha and the Omega, and we have nothing to dread. Paul said, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. It is with that in mind, Jude's words of Jude, verse 21 little one-chapter book near the end of the New Testament, Jude verse 21, in which we too are admonished with sweetness to snatch them out of the fire and help teach them the gospel. Are you and I building ourselves up on the most holy faith? Are we centering our life around the Alpha and the Omega? I trust that as we close this lesson in that regard and in that way, this final thought, and there isn't much more to say, the Alpha and the Omega. From cover to cover, from A to C, from A to Z, from first to last, from beginning to end, Christ Jesus is all of it. And if you and I are wise, we will, of course, maintain an understanding of that and live in harmony and in consistency with it. What about you and me tonight? Are you resting on the Alpha and the Omega, a life of prestige and richness and purpose and mission based on Him? There might be someone in the audience who can't with conviction say that the answer is yes. Maybe you once did, but you don't any longer. Maybe you've made some wrong decisions, you've made some poor choices, and that has led you down a pathway that you now know is not good. Thanks be unto God, there's an opportunity to repent and change. Why don't you do that tonight if that's the need of your life? One came forward this morning and made confession along that line, and wasn't it exciting to pray to God and to rest assured that God will forgive? We could do that again tonight. It would, in fact, be a blessing to do it. This very evening, though, if there's one that's never become a Christian, never named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, he is currently standing at the door and knocking, and He's waiting for you to reply. But to reply positively. It's possible to leave the door shut, but you don't want to do that. For that keeps Jesus on the other side and you apart from Him, and that's dangerous, eternally so. Why not open the door? Invite Him in. Jesus there said in Revelation 3, verses 20 and 21, I'll sup with you and you with me, a nice fellowship and a concourse. If we could help you tonight, we'd be delighted to do it. This hymn of encouragement we're about to stand and sing together, and if there'd be one or more that would find it needful to come, don't delay. Why not do it now as together we stand and sing?